Amen. Amen. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. Um, there's not one in every seat, but they're scattered. Um, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one outside of this place, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home. Uh, the reason for that is that we value God's Word here. Uh, it's the authority by which everything that I'm going to say of value has any merit today. Um, it's the, the tool that God uses to shape us both individually and as a body called the church. It's, a, the, uh, it's something that God uses to convict us of sin and draw us to repentance. It's effectual in his hands. So uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. We call that a win. Um, Ephesians chapter 6. So we're drawing close now to the end of our Ephesians series. We're going to start chapter 6 today. And if you didn't know, Ephesians has six chapters in it. So this one, then the next one. And then I got something special planned for the week after that. So we got like three weeks of this left. And so uh, we've been in this series since July. And so uh, it's been a good time. I think it's the best book of the Bible. If you disagree, you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but we're having a good time with it. Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. It's a port city. It was a major deal back in the first century. Uh, a lot of people believe it was the, one of the ma- biggest cities in the world at the time. It was a major port city. It was a hub for economics and for culture and for religion. The Temple of Artemis was there, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so uh, there's a lot swirling around the city of Ephesus. And Paul writes a letter to a group of Christians there. He calls them saints. That's how uh, Ephesians 1.1 starts. He says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. And so um, a lot of people think that a saint is this venerated class of people who've done special things and have special blessing from God. And the Bible teaches that a saint is somebody who's been declared holy. That's literally what a saint means. Right? That's, the, what, that's, that's the Greek word that's going on there. And so uh, for the Bible, a saint is anybody who's been declared holy. And in the Bible, you're declared holy because you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. You have, he has cleansed you of your sin. He has given you his righteousness. There's, there's, no, there's no other need to add stuff on after that. You, you're you're holy before him because he has declared you holy. No one gets to argue with God, right? And so uh, Paul addresses this letter to the saints who are in Ephesus. We would use the word church, but Paul uses the word saints. And so Paul writes a letter to the saints who are gathered in Ephesus to help them kind of navigate the waters of, of this city, this incredibly strategic city of Ephesus. His, his desire for them is to, to understand the gospel deeply and understand their place in God's story. And so he, he gives them tools to work by. But he didn't just start out of the gate uh, by giving them a to-do list. He doesn't say, here's your action items, accomplish this, this, and this, and the gospel will go forward. No, he gives them identity. He gives them the gospel. In the first half of the book of Ephesians uh, is a is just an unpacking of massive truth after massive truth after massive truth, and none of it has to do with how awesome I am. It's about the greatness and the bigness and the uniqueness and beauty of our God, how he stands apart from the tiny little old Artemis that the Ephesians worship. Now, now our God is eternal and eternally working. Uh, the, the phrase that Paul uses in chapter 1 is that he is working from before, before the foundation of the world. He is working all things according to the counsel of his purpose, is another way he says it. And so Paul unpacks for them truth after magnificent truth, after eternity-shaking truth of this is who God is, and this is what our God does. And in the back half of that letter, he begins to unfold for us how we practically live in light of those amazing eternity-shaking truths. Because God is like this, and because he is doing these things, this is how those who relate to him live in light of him. 
And we've been talking a lot in the last several weeks uh, about one of those practical outworkings. In the beginning of chapter 5, Paul tells us to be imitators of God. And he goes on to clarify that we are to love others the same way Jesus loved us. Which is a magnificent thing to say and just dumbfounds me when you start really trying to figure out what it means for, to love the same way Jesus does, right? Because Jesus stepped down from his throne, did not count equality with the Father as something to be clung to, Philippians tells us took on the form of a servant, put on flesh and dwelt among us. Do you realize how messy that is? Lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death for what Romans 5 tells us were his enemies. I, in my wildest imagination, would never define love that way. I don't do nice things for the people I don't like. I'm sure you're better than me. Jesus lays down his life for his enemies. He takes those who are spiritually dead and he makes them spiritually alive. And then Paul, for the rest of chapter 5 and now into chapter 6, gives us some ideas of what that love looks like in a practical way. He puts some flesh on the bones, we could say it that way. So you ready to look at the first part of chapter 6? Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. All right, kids, for those of you who are in the room, what does Paul say? He says, obey your parents. Let me translate that. I know it's 2018. Do what they say. Right? I mean, I know, I know we've got some kids that have gone off to the nursery, and I know uh, that age range between those who are still in here and those who are still calling themselves kids. I know that's a small window, but let me talk to just them for a second. Paul's command to you is to obey your parents. Crazy. You think he means it? Like... Like, anybody think that the fifth commandment was just no longer applicable because we moved on to bigger and better things? Paul actually takes the next step here, right? The fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. Paul here says, go the next step and obey them. Do what they say. Can we count examples? Can we come up with a list of things where it's sometimes appropriate to not obey? Of course we can. We can spend hours fleshing that out. But is that the norm? Not even close, right? It says, obey your parents. We can find exceptions, but even if the exception is in play, what about the honoring part? Does that one go away? No, right? Honoring is about more than just obeying, right? What else does it include? Yes, obeying. It's not less than that, but it's more than that, right? It's, 
It's about the way you speak to them. It's about the way you present them to others. It's, it's about the way you represent them in both word and action, right? Paul says, as an act of loving like Jesus loves, being imitators of God, as he's fleshing out all of these things, Paul says, hey, those of you who are still in your house, obey your parents. But does the command to honor go away when you leave your parents' house? Not even close. <laughs> right? Like you may be well beyond the time in your life where your parents are like actively speaking into your decision making and lifestyle and all those kinds of things. Maybe your parents are dead and gone. I don't know. But honor exists in your heart. Which means that their proximity is not what's important here. It's not what's in the driver's seat, is it? It also means that their deservedness is not what's in the driver's seat. So while the adults in the room like to mm-hmm and amen when the teenagers are being talked to, everyone in the room understands that this doesn't have a shelf life. Honoring our parents is an act of obedience on our part to God. And so Paul's command to the church is for children to honor their parents. Most of the time, that means obeying. Some of the times, it just means showing honor in some way. Look at, or we can ask the question, why? Like, why, why would that be important, right? I mean, I know we feel like it's important, but we don't like to play the I feel like it's important game here. We like to explain the why game here, right? So why is that important? Well, for one, because it preaches the gospel well, right? Like, remember what we talked about last week with the whole... Uh, the marriage thing is for the purpose of sh- preaching the gospel. That it doesn't exist for you, it exists for something much bigger than you. I think Paul's changed the subject a sentence later. So Paul's instructions here for younger kids to actively obey and for all children of all ages to still honor is about preaching the gospel. But he also gives something practical. Look at verse 3. that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Okay, so let me speak to the teenagers and young adults for a second again. Simply because most of the older ones have got this figured out by now. The answer you're looking for is yes, they are smarter than you. The next answer you're looking for is yes, they do have more life experience than you do. Could it be possible, just hypothetically, That our God is big enough and smart enough and good enough and loving enough that he has actually designed a family and equipped you with one for the sheer purpose of protecting you from being an idiot. (laughs) Throwing that out there. It's highly likely, right? Like this is kind of the way the world works. And listen, everybody older than you in the room has figured that out by now. That as you get older, the more and more this makes sense. It's at 35, it's just starting to click for me. This is incredibly practical stuff, right? I never want to verge into the health and wealth stuff, but let's ask a real question here. Do you think God wants you to be successful? Like, like avoid the dumb stuff successful at least? 
honor him in, in a way that brings him glory kind of successful? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Our God is an incredibly practical God sometimes. Our sinful hearts fail to see that God has given us simple, practical things. We fight against that. We rage against that. The sooner we learn that our God is good and he gives us those simple things, the better off we usually are, right? Look at verse 4. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Okay, so I think this is in the same vein as what we talked about last week with husbands, right? Um, Parents, your job is to bring your kids up in a way that's pleasing to God, right? But it's not because... It's not because you're the, the master of the house or you got to make sure your way happens. It's not your house, your rules. It's your job to cultivate your kids. You're the gardener here. He says, bring them up in discipline and instruction. That, that word discipline there is a massive word. It's the Greek word paedia. All right, so you want to learn some Greek this morning? Paedia. Good job. All right. Paedia... Um, Literally, it's most of the time translated as discipline, but it's way more than just like spankings and stuff, all right? Padia is a program. Padia, to the Greek-speaking mind, especially in the first century, um, represented everything that was tied into the ideal of training your children to be the ideal of Greek manhood. If that, does that make sense? That... Uh, whether you wanted to be the scholar, the philosopher, the, the theologian, the politician, the athlete, everything that encompassed uh, instruction and training and reproof and discipline, all of those things got rolled up into the singular Greek idea of paedia. We could say it this way it was the ancient Greek version of the American dream for your kids. Like whether, you, whether your kids are long gone or you're still working on them or maybe they're just a far off dream for you, it doesn't matter. Like I think we can all attest to, to falling into the rut sometimes of, of kind of this sway of the American dream. But like, I don't know, I can, I can be honest about my own heart, how about you? Like we, we desperately want our kids to, to be successful in this thing and that thing and all of those things tend to have very common themes in the world and the culture that we live in. But Paul here steals the word paedia for something far more grand. He usurps it for another purpose. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of who? Paul says that followers of Jesus are to aim their kids at something. And we're either aiming them at the Lord or we're aiming them at something less valuable and less satisfying than him. We're either aiming them at something inexhaustible and eternal or something that can't last and won't bring what they think it'll bring. Paul says, bring them up in the fear, in the instruction, discipline of the Lord. Paul says that our job, if we know Jesus, is to instruct and train and reprove our children toward the ideal of godliness to mold them into Christian maturity. 
But Paul specifically addresses fathers here, right? He didn't say mom and dad. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children. Which means, dad, just like you carry the responsibility of being the gospel lead in your marriage, you carry the responsible lead of being the gospel lead in, your, in raising your kids. Does that mean that's not a team effort? No. But somebody's got to say, this is what we're going to do. This is the track that we're going to run. I'm going to make sure that we're going to run it. Right? To so start the work early for harvest down the road because you're the gardener. But what if it's no longer early for your family? Well, just like everything else that God calls us to faithfulness-wise, you get to work now, right? What if they're already out of the house? Well, it's going to look different for you than the one who has the two-year-old. We get to work now, right? We've got to start sometime. So get to work, do what you can while you can. Like most things in this world, our job is to be faithful where we're called and let God be God. That's our role. But I need to be really careful here because this is not a promise, right? Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. This is not a promise that if you do all the right things that you're supposed to do, your kids are going to grow up well-adjusted and loving Jesus. There's two major ruts that we have to stay out of. First one is this. You can absolutely fail in parenting, and God can still save your kids. Is that true? Absolutely true. I, th- I think we all have a story or two to share. Over and over and over again, if we know anything about the sto- overarching story of the Bible, it's that God delights in using the screw-up and working in, in spite of them, Right? Like, if, if we wanted to give a, a, a couple of major themes to the overarching story of the Bible, the meta-narrative of the Bible, like, it's that God works powerfully and in spite of rejects. You can absolutely fail on the kid-raising side of things, and God can still save your kids. His arm is not too short for that. Which means... If you were successful, it's not an opportunity to beat your chest like you accomplished something. More likely than not, he still worked in spite of you somehow. But there's a second rut that we got to stay out of. It is possible to do absolutely everything you've been called to do and still watch your kids walk away from Jesus. When you're left in that moment going, what happened? What did I do wrong you need to understand that it's not because you're a failure. It's because salvation is personal. It's because God will have mercy on those whom he, shows, he chooses to have mercy. My hope this morning is to call us to put in hard work, but these things should never be overpromised. This isn't a chemical reaction. You don't combine all the parts and then go collect your results. But there is an environment that your kids can grow up in that God will often use to help them get where he wants them to be. So our job is to work faithfully through the good means that he's provided at whatever level is available to us forever, however long he decides to give us to work on it. And then let God be God. Right? Put in the work, 
pray for your kids, trust God's goodness. That's our role. Could we do more? Maybe. Look at verse 8. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. So the word bond servant there is the Greek word doulos. All right, D-O-U-L-O-S, doulos. It literally means slave. Paul's instructions here are for slaves to submit to their masters, which raises an interesting question in our world today. Does Paul here endorse slavery? There are a lot of people who would point at this text and accuse him of exactly that. And so as a response... Like some people have spent time uh, unpacking the reality that, that slavery in Paul's world in the first century Near East is very different from the chattel slavery that we think of in the last 500 years. And I think that's a true distinction to draw out. There, there, are, very, there are some massive differences between those two systems, those, those two socioeconomic kind of realities. But there's something else about our culture that I wish to maybe point out and to draw out a distinction with this morning because here's the deal. They're not that different. Like, slavery is still slavery. It's still owning someone else. So why doesn't Paul, like, call out slavery here? Why doesn't he, like, spend his time saying that this is improper in the church and there's no place for it and all these kinds of things? I mean, I know he kind of did that in Philemon, another letter that he wrote. Like, he, he kind of spells out exactly that kind of stuff. But why doesn't Paul do it here? It's because Paul did in Philemon. A letter that he wrote at the same time as Ephesians. Uh, for those of you who hadn't been here, uh, I know we talked months ago about the reality that uh, Ephesians is a letter that Paul writ while, wrote while under house arrest in Rome. They sent back to uh, Asia Minor. Uh, he, he wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the Colossians and Philemon and Philippians all at that same time. And so literally, Philemon is a letter that's probably being carried by the same person from Rome to Asia Minor for Paul. Paul addresses it in another letter. I don't know if you noticed, but um, we live in a culture that seems to be growing less and less patient with people who don't speak to the issue I want them to speak to at every moment. Anybody else notice that? And like, unfortunately, most things in this world, it's easiest to see on the internet, um, whether that's social media or YouTube or a news article, like to, to read the comments section of something like that nowadays is just an exercise in watching people flip out because their pet issue wasn't addressed. Anybody else notice this in our world? Like, um, regardless of what you think about the gun control issue, and I know we have people all over the map in here, and that's good. I think that's a, a glory to God. Um, but like, I remember a couple of days ago on Twitter, uh, I followed or just kind of saw something from a Democratic senator who literally Wednesday afternoon of the shooting was on CNN calling for stricter gun laws. Like, like that was the role he played. Whether you like that or not, doesn't matter. That's what he was doing, right? And then later in the week, he was, used his Twitter platform to uh, speak to something else he was working on for a second. 
And his own constituency laid into him. Hundreds of comments deep. How dare you take your foot off the gas on this other issue? Calling for him to be voted out of office and all kinds of stuff. Can we, can we just speak honestly? Our world is insane. Right? Our world is crazy. Last week we talked about the reality that it's possible for us to, to bring our insanity into our Bible reading and therefore miss the point. Is that still possible here? Can we fall victim to reading things into the Bible that aren't actually there? So what's Paul doing in Ephesians 6? He is addressing Christians who are wrapped up in a socioeconomic system that he has zero chance of undermining right now. But with a pastor's heart, he can speak to their reality and call them how to live in light of who God is and what God has done and their place in the story, right? Paul can unfold for them how God would call them to live in light of the gospel, and so that's what he does here. He says, work for your master as if you were working for Jesus. That's Paul's point in Ephesians 6, 5. Work for your master as if you were working for Jesus. Well, that's nice. What does that have to do with us? Right? Like, slavery does still exist in some parts of the world, and so, I mean, it's not like this text has no application left, but does it have any application for us? Yeah, I think so. I think we can loosely, with an emphasis on loosely, relate this to our own contexts of having to serve in some way. Whatever servant relationship you find yourself in, there's some, it's not the same, but there is some overlap. So Paul tells us to work hard, right? Be a good employee. Be a great student. Just treat your master like you would Jesus himself. Treat your master, obey your master like it was Jesus himself making the request. That's what he means by as to the Lord there, right? But you don't understand, Woodard, my boss is terrible. They don't appreciate me. They don't know how hard I work. They don't know the hours I put in. If Paul has the audacity to tell literal slaves to obey their masters, you think your jerk of the boss counts? Yeah. Yeah, he does. They're not even close to being on the same level. But why would Paul, why would Paul give this command? Because your job, your education, your whatever, ultimately doesn't exist for you. It's pointing to something much more eternal. For the follower of Jesus, those things aren't ultimately about you, just like with the marriage stuff last week, right? They are incredible gifts with incredible blessings from a God who loves you and wants good for you, but those things don't ultimately end on you. They exist for the glory of God and for the proclamation of the gospel, which means that your call to submit to your master is not about just making the world work better. It's a call to proclaim the gospel through the circles of influence that you have. It's a call to show the world what submitting to Jesus looks like through the pictures that God has given you opportunity to picture. 
And this is most assuredly the part of our time this morning where we need to remind ourselves that we are operating within the context of therefore. You remember? We've been saying for months now that we have to remind ourselves over and over again that all the commands to do that Paul gives us in the back half of Ephesians comes chronologically after all the duns that Jesus has accomplished for us. We're not earning anything here. We're not prettying ourselves up and positioning ourselves and posturing ourselves in such a way that God can be happy with us or pleased with us or finally accept us. This is about walking as consistently as possible as we can to model who our God is and what he has done on our behalf. Because if all we have, if all we have is our 80 years here, this command is the dumbest thing in the world. I mean, you thought about that for a second? The command to put your head down and do your job with a smile on your face. Just get it over with. This is the vainest thing I could think of. It is futile in every measure of the word. If all we have is the hope of this life, I mean, forget this. You go get what's good for you. The command will not make a lick of sense to someone whose identity is found in something other than Jesus. Not one bit. A world that doesn't know Jesus will rightly look at this and go, what in the world are you talking about? Who cares? But for those who have been declared saints, for those who are now walking as best they can to model what this life of declared holiness is, who have the promise in their back pocket that this world is not our home, This command becomes an opportunity to make much of Jesus. It becomes an opportunity to show the world how good our king is. There's no reason to put up with even a second of servitude if all you have is the hope of this life. You go get yours. But for those who understand that this is not the finish line, it is a minor errand on our way to something better. We can look, close by looking at, at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. So we talked a lot this morning to the people who find themselves in the, the subservient role, but maybe you happen to play the role of master. Whether that's as the husband or the parent or the boss or, God forbid, the slave owner. Maybe you find yourself in the master role. Paul says you better watch yourself. Best way I could put it. Be careful. Because one day you will stand before God and give an account and he is neither blind nor a respecter of your title. So while you play the role of master here, you have a master with a capital M who one day will carry out perfect justice. So walk wisely. Handle your position graciously because it may come back to haunt you. To see and use your role as a means to serve yourself will not end the way you hope it will end. Your position doesn't exist for you and your betterment. It also is there to preach the gospel. If you are the boss, your job 
is to preach the gospel as you lead. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you respond by pressing into God. You do that by repenting of things he's revealed to you this morning. Listen, maybe you have done very poorly at preaching the gospel through the way you submit to others. Maybe, maybe you played the boss role or the master role and you've done very poorly with how you preach the gospel to others. It's a good day to take steps of repentance. Just like with the, the kids' stuff, start working now. Turn the ship and do it right now. Maybe you screwed it up in the past. Okay, do, do it right now. Maybe this morning you need to repent of aiming your kids at things that can't ultimately satisfy. Take steps of pointing them at a better target from now on. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. That'll be an opportunity for those who are followers of Jesus to, to put feet to these to these responses that we're feeling rolling around in our heart. We can do something about this. So, so let's spend this time doing something about it. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. I say every week, and, and I mean it, that I hope this is a safe place for you to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Like, I really hope you understand that. This is a place where Jesus will change you inside and out. And as you're working out what that means, we trust he's big enough to pull it off, to keep hanging out. We hope that this is a place you can ask real questions and get real answers, but I promise you those answers are always going to come back to the beauty and goodness and uniqueness of Jesus. You can respond this morning by meeting him. Maybe today is the first day that you will, for the very first time, begin to follow him as Lord. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting in him alone for salvation. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of people up front to talk with you if you'd like somebody to help you walk through what that means. But Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for Ephesians. Just like last week, it, it kind of flies in the face of our culture. God, you, um, you save in spite of us. The list of failures in my own heart and life are too long for me to count. But you actively and effectually love the reject. You save those who have no business knowing you. You redeem hearts and marriages and homes and workplaces. We trust your goodness. We trust your ability to, to fix it. And maybe, maybe not all the things get fixed this side of heaven, but we trust you will one day make all things right. So find us faithful today. Help us take the next step today. God, for those who, who are here who don't know you, would you draw them to yourself this, this moment? Would you open up hearts to know you and see you as you are? I'm convinced that when we see you as you are, we are it is impossible not to fall in love with you.
God, would you do that? Would you save people today? As we all respond to your word, would you give us courage to do what you've called us to do? Would you help us take that next step? In your name we pray. Amen.